I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to The Brand is Female, where every week I speak with women changemakers who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through its program of educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. If you know me, you know of my love for literature by women authors. I love a good story that is completely transformative and captivating, and of course, I'll always favor women's voices. Which is why I'm happy to share that this week's episode of The Brand is Female is brought to you by HarperCollins Canada. HarperCollins is always pushing the boundaries of publishing, supporting authors and stories outside of the mainstream that address notions of gender, sexuality, and race. The Spectacular by Zoe Withal is a novel that challenges the societal notions of motherhood and the unspoken topics surrounding motherhood, such as miscarriage and postpartum. Told from a queer mom's perspective, The Spectacular is an inclusive novel that speaks to mothers of all ages and orientations. You can find this great read wherever books are sold and don't forget to support your local bookstore. I'm excited to introduce my conversation with Canadian author Zoe Withall, whose last novel, The Best Kind of People, was a national bestseller and a finalist for the Giller Prize. It's currently being adapted for a limited series by director Sarah Pauly. Zoe was also awarded a Canadian Screen Award for her work on The Baroness Von Sketch Show. She's just published her new novel, The Spectacular, a story that captures three generations of very different women who struggle to build an authentic life in the absence of traditional family and marital structures. In her book, Zoe explores sexuality, gender, and the weight of reproductive freedoms, and I wanted to tackle all these topics with her. Here is our conversation. Zoe, it's a pleasure welcoming you to The Brand is Female today. I'm so glad uh, we get to have this conversation. And I'm going to dive right in and ask you if it was always a dream of yours uh, to become a writer. It was always a dream for me to become a writer, but I didn't always remember that. Like, um, I wrote, I read very early and I wrote fake novels when I was a kid. Um, my mom says that even before I could write, I would dictate stories to her to write down. Um, but, you know, when I got to high school, I was so I was a voracious reader in elementary school. And I come from a creative family. My father's a musician and a songwriter. And he, um, he wrote, used to write plays for the kids at school. He was an elementary school teacher to perform. And, and uh, my mom was also a musician. And so I was always really encouraged creative, creatively. Um, but there was something about, like, when I went to college, um, or went to Sejap, I the idea of studying writing and, and becoming a writer seemed really lofty. Like, it seemed like uh, something that, you know, an ordinary person couldn't do. And... Um, And then when I was trying to decide what to study in university, my mom suggested thinking about what I used to love to do when I was three or four. And she told me, uh, you know, the anecdote about writing stories. And I thought, okay. So I applied to creative writing at Concordia. I was already writing a lot of poetry and songs. Um, and then it sort of went from there. And, and I was a poet for a number of years before I began writing fiction. Um, 
and my first novel was actually a collection of stories. And one of the stories kept getting bigger and bigger. And my editor at the time was like, I think you want this story to be a novel. But it was sort of like I had to trick myself into writing a novel because the idea of writing a novel seemed bananas. Um, and, but I actually really, really loved the form of the novel, the expansiveness of the world compared to the short story uh, is very comfortable to, for me. And so when did, if, was there a moment when you felt like, and, and I've read to, uh, I've read an interview you've, you've uh, given where you said basically anyone who's got a dream of writing a novel is just about hard work and kind of growing through the steps and making it happen, but you've got to want it more than anything else. Um, so I'm assuming you did want it more than anything else to make it to publishing, your, to get your first novel published. Um, was there a moment where it felt like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm a writer now that, you know, there's an official book that's come out with my name printed on the cover. Yes. Um, I think because I was a poet first and I had two books of poetry before the novel, I think it was sort of like easing, you know, when you ease your way into the water, you know, you put your toe first and then, so I, you know, I, I knew the community of poets. I knew, um, I, I worked at a small press publisher at the time. And so I sort of knew the publishing world, but novelists still seemed like writing a novel still seemed like another echelon above that I wasn't really sure I could do. Um, and so it really did. T I, I think there were a number of steps like, or a number of firsts, you know, like I think my first Globe and Mail review was a really big moment. Um, and getting my first Canada Council Arts grant to write another novel felt like a huge moment. Um, because, you know, I, I came from an activist background and, and in the 1990s, I used to write zines. I used to self-publish zines and um, I used to perform as a folk singer and a poet in Montreal in the 90s. And then it wasn't until I moved to Toronto that I began to feel like, oh, maybe I really want to study writing. Maybe I really would like to devote more time to fiction. Um, but I didn't end up doing an MFA until I was in my 30s. Um, and that was after I put out my first novel. And that was, uh, that sort of, you know, was another moment where I was like, no, I'm really going to try to do this seriously and devote all of my energy uh, to trying to make this dream happen. Um, you know, and I wasn't really able to support myself as a writer fully, just as a writer until, you know, 2014, 2015, I've always had other work, but I've been, I've been lucky that I've been able to, to be a writer full time since then. And that really was, um, that really was my dream. Like I, al I always did other jobs, but I, I was never fully committed or as committed as I was to writing um, with any other work. Mm -hmm. That that's really interesting. I love I love hearing how you you know it's never it's never a linear uh, you know journey from point A to point B obviously, and <clears throat> I'm sure you had um, a lot of, of works and, and authors who influenced you along the way, but were or, or and I'm I'm interested in in specifically women authors or um, works by women who uh, maybe influenced you or marked you a little bit more uh, maybe as you were studying or even as you started writing uh, your, your first work, whether it was poetry or fiction? Yes. Um, I was very influenced by um, 
so many, but what am I going to think? Uh, so the novel Heroine by Gail Scott, the Montreal writer, was very influential. I encountered a novel, her not that novel, in uh, a class at Concordia, and that really blew my mind in terms of what a novel could be, like looking at the form of the novel and sort of a hybrid form between poetry and prose and memoir. Um, that was really informed, like really informed, like really opened my mind in terms of what I could do on the page. Um, I think Heather O'Neill was a really big influence to me um, going from poet poetry to fiction. I love the way that she how many like how many little tiny stories she can put into a sentence and then in then into the par she really packs these like beautiful little mini stories and puzzles inside all of her paragraphs which i admire um and i was really i think i was really influenced by uh some of the early queer novels that i read in as a young person like um sarah shulman's fiction uh eileen miles fiction um i basically really was was drawn to work that incorporated poetry into the prose mm -hmm. love that and i want to talk about um your what was your your third novel the the best kind of people who obviously received a, a lot of critical acclaim uh, you were shortlisted for a giller prize and sarah Pauly has decided to adapt it into a movie and you've um, I read I read that you had received a lot of interest in, in in turning that story into a movie, but it was Sarah's project that really uh, finally won you over. Um, and, but you've also uh, you've been writing for TV as well. So I'm I'm curious to know uh, about the, the the and and we'll come back to the best kind of people uh, in after after this question. But I'm curious to know. Uh, what the main difference is for you when you are writing for the screen and when you're writing, uh, you know, uh, fiction that's that's assigned for a book. And in this case, seeing a work of fiction that is being transformed uh, into a movie. And if I'm not mistaken, that's going to be coming out uh, in, in 2022, um, if what I've read is right and if COVID hasn't changed the plans. Um, but I'm curious to know, uh, you know, what what the process, how different the process is basically and how you approach those two types of writing. Okay, so I approach them very differently, um, but over the years I've noticed that they inform each other. Um, so TV is a very collaborative medium, and that took some getting used to coming from prose. Um, you know, even if your name is on a script, what what ends up showing up on screen is often in the voice of the showrunner. Um, And so, and every story, every moment, every character is sort of written as a group. And with prose, everything is so private um, until you decide to show somebody your work. Um, and so there's just, there's so much more time and so much more room to write in prose. And in TV, it's, it's very fast. You know, um, I interviewed the novelist Lynn Cody, who also works in TV. And she said something that I really related to in that the first time she was in a writing room for a television show, everybody thinks so quickly. You have to, and you have to 
as quickly as you come up with an idea, you need to be able to let it go because that's just the pace of trying to figure out a TV show. And um, so you can't get attached to things the way you can get attached to things in, in prose. Um, and also there's a level of brevity in script writing that doesn't make sense for fiction. Like um, all of my first scripts, when, um, when I would get feedback from producers, they would be like, you need to take out the words. You know, you just need very simple action lines, very, like you have to get into a scene really quickly and leave it just as quickly. And so all these things that are sort of counterintuitive to what you think of as good writing um, on, in a, on, in a book project. Um, so it was fascinating. And I really, I really love uh, watching TV. I love the art of it. I love the collaborative process. It has, it, you know, it sort of began as a way um, to try to make money in a different way. It sort of, I, I, I got into TV because I love comedy writing and I was writing the best kind of people, which is a very serious book. And I needed something to do that was a little more lighthearted. And so I began taking comedy classes and I began doing stand-up comedy. And then I took a class on how to turn your stand-up comedy into a sitcom script. And so I wrote a sitcom script and then I sold that to CTV. And it never got made, but it was my way into the industry. So that was how I began to, you know, that's how I got an agent, a TV agent. And that's how I got my first job, which was writing on the show Degrassi, mm -hmm. um, which was so much fun. And I learned an incredible amount. And so that's sort of how, you know, how that world opened up for me. And I do think that trying to be both a novelist and a TV writer at the same time is a really sometimes difficult or challenging juggling act in terms of you only have so many hours in a day to devote to your projects, but it's also, um, you know, what it means is I, it means that I don't have to teach writing. It means that I don't have to, I can take my time with, with prose projects because I'm not worrying about money all the time. Um, and it's also really fun. So it's kind of a way of having a social work world, um, because writing novels is such a private and solitary venture. Mm -hmm. I can, I can see that. And what does it feel like now knowing that what you wrote for prose in the first place uh, is being adapted into, uh, into a movie script. So I'm curious what that experience has been like and um, what are your thoughts on uh, the prospect of starting to see that story come alive on film, as opposed to uh, the pages of a book? I am so excited to see what Sarah Polly is going to do. Um, she is. She did decide to turn it into a limited series as opposed to a feature film, oh, okay. which is really exciting. I really can see it. She did let me read some of the scripts, and I think they're fantastic. I felt like, um, you know, with my first novel, Bottle Rocket Hearts, and my second novel, Holding Still for as Long as Possible, both of those projects have been optioned, and I have been hired to write the adaptations for both of them. But with the best kind of people, it, you know, it was such an intense book that I was really ready to let it go. Um, and, but I didn't want to let it go to just anybody. And um, when Sarah came on, I was really shocked and excited. I'm such a big fan of her work. And um, we had a couple of conversations about what her vision was And it really lined up with what I thought my vision was for the, for the adaptation. And I just kind of was happy to let it go. Like I was happy to move on to other projects and to have it, the, the screen version be in 
in such good hands. Um, so I'm just really excited to see what she does. And I'm hoping, you know, COVID did throw the, um, the schedule up in the air a little bit. So I don't think it'll come out next year, but hopefully the year after. Um, and I'm just really thrilled that it's going to have a life on screen because um, like most writers know, you know, our, our work gets optioned all the time, but it's really, really difficult to get made, especially in Canada. Um, you know, so many projects are developed and only so, so few actually go to camera. So I, but I think this one has a really good chance and, uh, and I'm super psyched about it. I'm excited to see it too, and and uh, very interested to hear it's going to be a series, um, which uh, allows for a longer, uh, you know, longer time on screen, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm excited to see that as well. And so going back to um, or looking at the main story and the best kind of people, and you address uh, topics around rape, around sexual assault, um, which are not uh, are not always easy to treat, really in in any any format, but um, especially in a book in prose where uh, each character is uh, you know gets. Uh, we, we can dig deeper into what their experiences are and, and every aspect of uh, what they're feeling and thinking and going through. And the book actually came out and, and I know, you know, this, this was mostly a coincidence, but it did come out kind of during, you know, Me Too and at a time when we had a few instances of uh, major uh, sexual assault cases in Canada that were uh, making headlines. But um I'm I'm curious to know what was the intent with wanting to bring that kind of story um, to a book and share it with your public. Um, I've also read in an interview you've, you've given on that topic. I've, I've heard you say that you know it's for any young woman. Unfortunately, that's typically part, uh, if if not of our own personal experiences, it's something that you know, we've, we've come across, um, and it's unfortunately part of being a woman in today's society. Uh, but going back to bringing this, you know, that storyline at, at the heart of your book, curious to know what was the intent and, um, what, what drove you to make that decision and want to write that book? Okay. Um, so what drove me to write the book was actually, it began as a procrastination book because, I was writing the spectacular and I was blocked. And then I became inspired to try to write the character of Joan, which is uh, the mother character, um, because I was listening to CBC radio and I, it was right around the time of the Russell Williams case in Ontario. I don't know if you heard about it, but he was, I guess that was national news. You know, he was, he was in the military and he was accused of murder and, um, it was a big, big case in Tweed, Ontario. And, and the focus of the interview on CBC was about his wife and, and people not believing that she didn't know. Um, and I was really struck by the idea of a wife who would, could be married to somebody and not know that they were um, a criminal. And, so that was my exploration of Joan and, and the interview on CBC was with, they had a psychologist who uh, was a, who ran a support group for partners of people who had committed sexual crimes and wanted to stay with them. And so that was fascinating to me, like why anybody would want to stay. Um, and so I decided to sort of use that as a creative experiment to see if I could write from the point of view 
of somebody who would attend that group. And so the first scene that I wrote in that novel was the one where she attends the support group. And, and then I sort of built it from there. And I was just really curious, um, you know, who that person might be and what, what would sort of inform her wish to stay. Um, and also like the capacity for people to be in denial is interesting to me. Um, and, and I also felt like, you know, the story of somebody in a small town committing sexual assault uh, or not, like it w being accused, um, was interesting in that, in that we've seen that story told many times. It's often uh, a crime thriller or it's, it's about the crimes, it's about the person committing the crimes or it's about the police and them investigating, or it's a bit of a mix. Um, and we often don't hear that story from the point of view of the loved one and what it would feel like to be completely blindsided by that experience. And also the stigma that family members and partners face when, um, when someone's arrested or implicated in a crime. Um, it's a, like a really unique experience. And I think that like the timing of the book was interesting because, um, you know, I was editing it during the Giangle Meshi trial uh, because the Toronto media and arts community is so small, like many people I knew were directly involved in that situation. And it's like, and also it was a time when people were, start, where women were starting to speak out about their experiences. And so a lot of us, just because of that, we're faced with the experiences of um, figuring out that someone you're friends with has been accused of, you know, it's a, it's, and those are very uncomfortable feelings to like, to like somebody and to not want to believe that they could be capable of something like that. I think it's a very human, very natural reaction to feel defensive or to not believe and, or to like, believe politically in something that then emotionally feels more complicated. Um, and that was interesting to me. Um, I also had the experience of, uh, I grew up in a small town or I grew up on a farm in the Eastern townships and the, and the school, the town where I went to school um, was also a small town. And there was a teacher who was a very popular teacher who was later accused of molestation of a student and I had already moved away at that point but my parents my dad who taught at the school was still living there and so I was sort of you know able to witness secondhand like how the community reacted um and some of some people it was really split some people um supported him and did not believe the people accusing him and some people um really did believe it. And I think there was a real culture, culture of silence. Um, and he eventually was arrested and didn't go to, did go to jail. Um, but because he was so beloved and like such a good teacher and people had all these memories of him and, you know, in like a very small town, um, everybody knows each other for generations. So, um, I was really curious about like how that might play out in that community. And so I decided like that, so that town was more of, um, you know, lots of like middle-class working class people. Um, and I didn't want it to be too similar to the town I'm from. So I changed it to be a very wealthy American town. 
and um, I, I was really interested in how power and wealth could shift the community response, especially if he was a powerful, wealthy figure. Um, but so those were the two inspirations, I think, was that radio interview and then the memories of what it was like for that teacher to have become, um, you know, to have been found out. And he was someone who I really thought was cool when I was a kid and sort of knew and, and um, yeah, so I was really interested in the emotional lives of the people left behind when someone goes to jail for those kind of crimes. And, and that was the, the way into the narrative. Mm. And it's, it's a beautiful book, which I've really enjoyed reading. And again, kind of that depth and, and, and complexity of the characters. And as you said, it's kind of a completely different take on how these stories are usually uh, uh, treated in, in, in a book or even a film. So I'm really excited to see uh, um, how it comes through on, on screen. Thank you to our partners at HarperCollins for their support of today's episode. We're all about supporting women on this podcast, and so are the publishers at HarperCollins. They invest in authors who are writing stories about women, for women, and by women. The novel Black Girls Must Die Exhausted is a rare find in the world of women's fiction. The book's story is centered around a successful young Black woman who seems to have it all, a great dating life, a beautiful home, and a great job. However, an unexpected fertility crisis puts the protagonist in a tailspin. If you're looking for a fall read that examines the experiences of race, contemporary womanhood, and modern relationships, pre-order it now or pick it up at your favorite bookstore. And now talking about The Spectacular, your latest book, which in this case really focuses on, on motherhood, but, um, you know, all, all the definitions of motherhood and all the, uh, the ways that women uh, may, may connect with their role as a, as a mother, as a daughter, uh, uh, as well in the case of, uh, of your, your main character. And I can see that your, um, your, your musical influences or, or your exposure to the music industry probably inspired part of the, the setting for the book since Missy is a, a musician herself. And I know as well that some of your own uh, family roots and, and family connections to Istanbul um, have, have made it into the plot as well. But um, I'm curious to ask you, because actually on the, on the back of the book, there's, um, there's this sentence, there's this statement that goes, some people are meant to be mothers and some people are meant to be free. Um, so I, I'd like to start from, from that point and ask you, um, how did you, or, or maybe what inspired you to explore uh, the, the concepts around motherhood in that way? And knowing also that there's so much societal pressure around, you know, women that should, it, it's almost like society wants all women to become mothers. And then for women who choose or who become mothers, then there's immense pressure to kind of play that part and become that character of the perfect mom. And we all know in reality, that is not so obvious. So we'd love to know, you know, what drove you to want to tell uh, a story like this one. And um, I'm also curious to know what motherhood means for you. Sure. Um, so basically what inspired the book, a lot of things inspired the book, but two major things were that, you know, from the age of 30 until I'm 45 now, from the age of 30 to 40, 
I think I woke up every single day asking myself if I should have a kid, (laughs) you know, like, should I, should I not, should I do it now? Should I wait until I have more security? Should I wait until a, a book gets big? Should I, you know, I never really knew there never really felt like there was the right, it was the right time. Um, but I always really wanted to have a kid and, um, I was in two relationships back to back, one with a woman who didn't want kids at all. And it was part of the reason why we broke up when I was 37. And then I fell in love with someone who had kids already when I was 38. And so then I became sort of like a stepmom for about five years to his kids. And I felt good about, about that. And I sort of put the idea of having my own kid off, um, off the table. And then, um, but I was always really intellectually interested in the idea of should I or shouldn't I and and how people make that decision. And I think that as a queer person, it's a lot more, it's a bigger decision. Like it's more of a decision. I think, you know, there can be no accidents. And so, um, and that adds a layer to it. And so I wanted with the character of Missy, I, I wanted to, Missy, Missy, Carol and Ruth, for those who haven't read the book, um, are there, I sort of enter into their lives at certain key moments. Um, and they are moments where they feel differently about whether or not they want to be a parent. Um, and so when we meet Missy, she's trying to actually, she's 21 and she's trying to get her tubes tied before she goes on tour. And she is like a really, at this time in her life, like a really impulsive, um, like her, her voice, I, I, you know, I addressed her personality in the, uh, using sort of first person fast monologue, you know, like she's a very energetic, very opinionated, very kind of sometimes obnoxious character and really fun to write. But she, you know, the book opens with her trying to get her tubes tied in Quebec in the nineties. Um, and I was inspired to write that section because my ex-sister-in-law who lives, who lived in Montreal when she was 38, turning 39, tried to get that procedure done in Quebec. And she went to so many doctors and they all refused her. Um, whereas if you want a vasectomy and you're a man, you can get it anytime you like. So, but, but in, I don't, I don't think it's just Quebec, but I think that there was a, you know, a certain kind of paternalism that played into um, why she couldn't exercise that right. So I was fascinated by that. Um, And I was fascinated by the, the, you know, the pressures to become a mom and to really focus on that being a goal. Um, And especially for Missy, like her backstory is that Carola regretted having her. And I think she sort of knew that. Um, So another another way into the novel was that I was interested because during this time when I was preoccupied with whether or not I should have a kid, I, you know, you have so many fears that come up. And one of the fears is what if I do and I regret it? And that was something I felt like I couldn't even think about because like to contemplate that is so horrific. But then there are people who sincerely feel that way. And there's a huge taboo about talking about it. And there's also a huge taboo about just talking about like just being blunt and honest about the realities of parenthood. And um, I think that in the seventies parents used to be able to just talk about things being hard 
Um, and now there's a culture of like, uh, there's like a preciousness um, to motherhood and the way we talk about it culturally um, that to suggest it's anything other than amazing and beautiful all the time is to, is horrible. So I, I began to like read scholarly work around the idea of people who regret parenthood, specifically mothers. Um, and I was, that's sort of how I created Kerala. I also think there's an interesting, I, there's an interesting second wave feminist time where you know, my mom's generation was the first generation who were told that they could do both. I mean, I think poor women and marginalized women, working class women have always worked. I think that second wave feminism was, you know, in certain ways, just like a middle class thing. But I think, you know, specifically for my mom and her, her peer group, there was a lot of pressure to try to have as many to achieve as many things as possible while also being a mom. And so I think a lot of, um, a lot of us who were born in the seventies had parents who were trying, who were trying to be a lot of things and, and who were more vocal about like being at the, the domestic life and parenting as not being, uh, the be all end all. And specifically Carola is an, is, is like a specific kind of back to the lander. Like she was, um, you know, part of it, really interested in um, collective decision making and communal living. And, and, you know, her and Bryce, Missy's dad have a commune and that's where she's raised until she's 12. And so, you know, that puts a whole other, that's a whole other aspect of um, what parenting was like, the challenges she faced as a parent. Um, and so I was, I was interested in that. I was also interested in the grandmother character Ruth now I was never close to my own grandmother but she did leave behind some some diaries about what it was like to live in Turkey in the when she was a child and specifically like two two times that she had to escape during war um and that was really fascinating to me um to to read those things and to imagine that i imagined the character in the book as this very maternal figure my own grandmother was not very maternal in fact she was quite a cold british lady who was really like a talented musician and had lots of friends but like you know she would say things like children should be seen and not heard she would just you know very ridiculously old-fashioned things like that um and so I imagined, like, what would it have been like to have, a, you know, a grandparent, to be close to a grandparent, especially if your own mother sort of um, was a bit narcissistic. Um, and so I, I sort of imagined what, it, what that would have been like for Missy and then went from there. And it was important to me in terms of, you know, writing a book about motherhood. It's, it's less about motherhood. It's more about reproductive and sexual freedoms. Mm. Like, um, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, but like every character of the three main characters, they choose motherhood and they choose abortion, all three of them at different t points in their life. And I think that um, the decisions under which they choose to have abortions and which when they choose to have kids are really representative of when that actually happens in life. Like, you know, Ruth decides to have an illegal abortion because she's already had, she already has children. She's, uh, fulfilled by that role, but she doesn't want to prolong this negative marriage that she's in. And so 
you know, that's quite a lot of people who, a lot of women who have abortions um, do so because they are already parents. And that's something that's not talked about a lot. Um, and because she, because Ruth, it's the 1950s and because she has money and she's a white woman, um, she's able to access it even though it's illegal. And so mm -hmm. the story of how she is able to get an abortion, it's actually taken from some real life, um, some of the research I did about how it was possible to get abortions in Montreal in the 50s. Like there were nurses that would perform them in the middle of the night uh, under, and they would, um, you know, put them in the books as, as uh, hysterectomies or other, you know, allowable operations and, and that sort of thing um, for a fee. Like there was sort of an underground network, which I thought was fascinating, yeah. And and thank you for writing about that because um, I, you know I think that women need to hear more more of those real life or real life inspired stories and um, and take away all the shame and, and and the guilt around you know the the different reasons why we we do get abortions. Um, and I'm curious to ask you so on the topic of um, reproductive rights and abortion rights and 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 you know the 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 novel actually opens with Missy walking into an, an abortion clinic actually not not to get a, a an abortion but she has that interaction with uh, uh, pro-life uh, protesters outside which we know is still uh, is still a thing um, and the, the novel is set in, in the late 90s. Um, do you think we've made progress? And, you know, if we look at Canada specifically, um, well, and look at Canada specifically, knowing that in the States there are still, uh, you know, very recently uh, there's, there's ongoing, uh, you know, judicial battles to protect reproductive rights. And um, it feels like our, our rights are still... Uh, you know, we're still uh, uh, at risk of losing them. But do you think much has changed between, you know, if we compare even, uh, you know, from the 50s to the late 90s when the book is set and, and today in 2021, where are we at with reproductive rights in, in, your, in your views? Well, I think that we're very lucky in Canada in some ways because of our social safety net. And I think that um, you know, I have very vivid memories of watching Chantal Daigle on TV in the late 80s, uh, which was a, a famous abortion case where she was fighting to be able to have an abortion and her husband was trying to prevent her boyfriend. Um, and, you know, I write in the book a passage in that's set in 1970 on Parliament Hill when the abortion caravan arrives and there's a big um, protest and... Um, a young Carol is able to witness that event. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty amazing that that happened in 1970 and then the laws didn't change until 1988. Um, so I think now, I think it's similar to the U.S. Like, I think that it's still difficult for women who live in rural areas um, and specifically Indigenous women and women who live in the North. Like, there is a lot of there are a lot of situations where you have to travel far to get reproductive health care. And I think that, you know, for example, there was only one clinic in New Brunswick who would perform abortions and that clinic was shut down recently. And so, you know, I don't think that we have equal access in Canada to this to the resources that we need. And I think that there's a still still a lot of like undue influence of the Catholic Church um, on hospitals and um, even in terms of like where teenagers 
how teenagers are able to get sex education um, and, you know, information on birth control. I think that like in some ways legislatively we are better than the states and in some ways because we have a social, because we have healthcare, we, there are some issues, but there's still like a lot of medical racism and a lot of, um, a lot of situations that are unfair towards women who aren't, um, you know, resourced and, you know, mar and marginalized women, I think still struggle to have the same kind of care. Um, and not just women, anyone who can give birth. Um, so yeah, I think when I look at like what happens in the States in terms of, you know, people having miscarriages and then being criminalized for it, like we don't have that level of insanity here, but, but there are still issues, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, and again, thank you for, for writing the book and, and making that such a, an, an important part of the, of the plot. Um, are there stories that you wish and, and stories, you know, about women and by women, hopefully as well, um, that you wish were told more stories that maybe you're not seeing in Canadian literature or on Canadian screens and, you know, maybe that is something you're working on for a next book. So I don't want to, uh, you know, spoil any, any surprises, but is there, is there something you, you feel, you know, is missing or you, you would just like to, uh, see told more? Um, you know, five years ago, I would have said I, w I wanted more. And I think this is still true. I think that, um, stories about queer women, I think I could always use more. I'm always trying to help queer writers get ahead. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's night and day even now, you know, because Missy, the character doesn't come out until later in the book. And there's a whole story set in 2018 um, about her relationship with a trans man and then her subsequently identifying more as queer as she develops feelings for people of all genders. Um, and now it's actually something that I feel like publishers are beginning to want to market and are interested in, in selling. Uh, way more than ever. And I think that's really encouraging. And I hope that, you know, I, you know, my first novel was about a lesbian relationship in the set before the 1995 referendum. And um, it was very difficult to sell that book. And, you know, some of the reviews on Amazon are like, one of them said, it's so funny. One of them was like, I had no idea this was a gay book and I wouldn't have picked it up if I knew, but it turned out to be interesting. You know, and I think that uh, generally readers are more able to open their minds and read about other people, you know, other than themselves, like that they don't relate to. I think that, you know, the market has changed in that way. Um, but I do think we still have ways, a ways to go. And I think uh, I'm always interested in, in, in reading work about queer and trans people in contemporary life. Mm -hmm. And actually, as a segue to that, what would be your advice to young, uh, young women, you know, non-binary people, uh, queer people who are hoping to write maybe what will be their, their first book? Um, where is a good place to start? Oh, that's really interesting. I think, you know, I always tell writers, aspiring writers, that if you want to write contemporary novels, you have to read contemporary novels. You have to be a reader first. Um, and to try to get used to rejection and just accept it as part of the world, part of the job, um, and to be really careful about 
um, not sending your work out too quickly, like to, to really rewrite, rewrite, rewrite until, um, until you have some perspective on it until like the, the draft that you're going to submit looks almost nothing like the first draft you wrote. I think that that's, um, a reality that I think people don't always understand at first. Um, yeah. And to really think hard about what your natural voice is, like what, what makes your work special on the page and how like stylistically, like at the level of the sentence, um, what makes your sentences interesting and then try to figure it out from there. All, all good advice. And my favorite question to ask guests on the show, which is what do you wish women would do less of? And I used to ask the question, what do you wish women would do more of until oh. it was pointed out to me that we, you know, as women, we're already expected to do so much and we put so much pressure on ourselves to keep doing more that I should really be asking the opposite, but you can choose to answer that in whatever way you want. What do we, uh, what do I wish women were doing less of, I guess? Interesting. Okay. Um, I mean, it's something that I do as well, but I think it, it would, would be great if, if we would apologize less for um, wanting to participate in the cultural conversation um, and sort of approaching being part of the intellectual and artistic conversation and zeitgeist with more of a, a feeling of, you know, that it's okay to be there, that we're, we're a part of it and we don't need to ask for permission to be there. And uh, I know that's difficult, you know, because we're not all, it makes sense to not be super confident all the time when, especially when you're starting out. But, but I think like going and accepting that we're part of the conversation um, is, would be great. Mm. I, I love that. That's a great one. And in closing, I want to, I want to say, I just, I just came across this sketch you posted on Twitter that you wrote for the Von Baroness show about Mercury retrograde and Mercury retrograde just ended this week. And we were joking on the team, actually observing that, you know, a lot of stuff just magically started working again. Um, and I just thought that was completely hilarious and so spot on. So that was a really good one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I had so much fun writing for the Baroness Fun Sketch Show. I learned an incredible amount from those talented women. And yeah, I think it's very, I think the idea of Mercury and retrograde is so funny. I'm, I'm uh, dating a skeptic, an astrology skeptic. And it's always a funny conversation because I feel like when Mercury is in retrograde, there's something undeniable, undeniably in the air that's screwing things up. And it's, it's, a, it's funny. Funny to me. Yeah. yeah. So it, it was perfectly illustrated in that sketch, actually. Um, so thank you so much. Very excited for the spectacular to come out. Very excited for the best kind of people to come out on screens. We'll we'll stay tuned and can't wait to see what the next project is gonna be. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Bank Group, Women Entrepreneurs, for the support of The Brandy's Female. You got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandysfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a week with a new guest.